Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Good morning, everybody. Good. So my name is Michael, for those who don't know me. Um, and apparently I tell good jokes, but <laughs> it's the first I've heard of it. Uh, so... This morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. And today they gave me one verse, because they didn't trust me with any more than that. So this one verse here, Ephesians 5 verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this scripture like a sleeping baby up there looks so cute and innocent. But once we wake this baby will discover this scripture is the gateway to one of the most controversial topics in Christendom today. Is that exciting? Now, the views mentioned here today do not necessarily uh, represent the views of the management. I just want to give that disclaimer. And so let's wake this baby and have some fun with it. We'll, we'll start with the first word, which is hupotasso in the Greek, which means to submit. It means to place or rank under, to subject or to obey. So submit and obey are synonyms. Comes from the words hypo and tasso, meaning to arrange under or under God's arrangement, or submitting as to the Lord. The next thing we notice in Ephesians 5.21 is it's grammatically, it's just a phrase. It's actually the last phrase in a long sentence that begins at Ephesians chapter 5.18, and which forms the introduction to what is called the Christian Household Code, which then goes from Ephesians 5.22 to 6.9, with instructions for wives, husbands, children, slaves, and masters. So today we're going to need some help today from a friend of ours called Mr. Hermeneutics. And so hermeneutics is the principles of biblical interpretation or how to interpret the Bible. And there's two main sections to it. The first part is interpretation, what the passage meant then and there. We need to understand why the author wrote the passage, and how the people who read the passage then and there understood it. What did they clearly understand it to mean? And once we've got that, we can then move on to application, which is how we apply that passage here and now. Because we need to understand the interpretation then and there is essential to applying it correctly here and now. If we get then and there wrong, then likely the applications will be wrong and sometimes with some substantial consequences. So let's start with the interpretation, what it meant then and there. We're going to look at some context, those ones there, and the first one I'm going to start with is the grammatical context. Now here we have Ephesians chapter 5, so let's all read together from the top. <laughs> okay, on the left we have Papyrus 46, and on the right we have Codex Vaticanus, but they're both Ephesians chapter 5. And the thing you'll, first thing you'll notice is there's no full stops, there's no paragraphs, there's no sentences. The only way you can understand where a sentence starts and finishes in Greek is by the grammar, by the prefixes, suffixes, and the connecting words. And what we learn from the grammar is that chapter, verse, uh, the grammar tells us that verse 18 to 21 is one long sentence. And now for those who are interested, it contains two imperative verbs and five participles. So the first imperative, so we're actually going to start at verse 17 to get some context. The context here is, therefore, do not be unwise. That's the context. But understand what the will of the Lord is. So today, our topic is, what's the will of the Lord? And so now we go to the sentence, starting at verse 18. The first uh, imperative verb is, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. And the second imperative verb is, but be filled with the Spirit. 
So the second thing this passage is, is talking about today is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. What are some of the outworkings? What are some of the manifestations of being filled with the Spirit? They are, num- there's five participles. Number one, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for the Lord, uh, th- th- for all things to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And number five, submitting to one another out of fear or reverence for Christ. So one of the manifestations of walking, of being filled with the Spirit is being willing to submit. So the first century Christian household code, it goes like this. Sorry, it's small, so I'll read it out to you. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which we, he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his own wife, uh, love his, his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect the husband. Now, the household code then goes on and says, children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. But today, in addition to verse 21, we're mainly going to focus on verse 22 and 25. Wives, to your husbands is under the Lord, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So the next thing we notice in the middle there on the left-hand side, the word submit doesn't actually appear in the Greek. It's not there. It actually says, wives, to your own husbands as under the Lord. That's because it's what's called an elided verb, which comes from the word ellipsis. Now, you know when you look at a computer, you've got those three little dots in the corner, okay? And when you click on that, there's more behind it. When you're putting in a quote and you're leaving out part of it, you'll put in part of the quote and you put three little dots at the end to say there's actually more to this quote. That's what an ellipsis is, and that's what an elided verb is. What it means is the verb in verse 21, submit, and the verb in verse 24 carry forward into verse, carry into verse 22. It's not there, but there's more there. The word should be there. And today we're going to look at what's called parallel passages, an important part of hermeneutics. The parallel passages, now Colossians is a mini Ephesians. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon are the prison epistles. Uh, Paul wrote Ephesians, which was the long version, and then he wrote Colossians, which is a mini version of Ephesians. And you'll find a lot of the same themes there. It's a very good parallel passage. There it includes the word submit. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, hupotasso. And 1 Peter 3, 1, wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands. So the parallel passages clearly have the word there. So the first thing we're going to look at is, the next thing we're going to look at is the historical context. The household code, when Paul said wives submit, was he, from a humanist perspective, just a misogynist, promoting a toxic masculinity? Or from a historical perspective, was he perpetuating an outdated traditional Jewish relationship code? Or from a cultural perspective, was he Christianizing with love the first century Roman family code called Patria Potestas, or the power of the father, with its accompanying abuses. Now, under Patria Potestas, which was what was in place at the time this was written, the wife was legally handed from the father to her husband. 
Biological children and slaves could be sold, and as the father was the magistrate for the home, he could execute any family member, though that was rare, uh, which is handy. Uh, so it had a lot of abuses, as you can see. Or was Paul giving us a revelation? From the revelatory perspective, was he revealing God's design for marital relationships in this life to reflect the relationship of first Christ and the church, but also Christ and the Father? So now we're going to look at the scriptural context or the purpose of the passage. We can't read Ephesians chapter 5 unless we understand what the whole purpose of the book of Ephesians was about. Once we understand that, then the, the verse makes quite a lot of sense. So to do that, we're actually going to start at 5.31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So marriage is one of the great mysteries of life what was God thinking because you see it's more than biology there's a much bigger picture and purpose for God creating marriage marriage is a reflection of Christ and the church you're going to see in Ephesians as I read through it the words head and body repeated again and again and I'll emphasize these words Marriage is also a reflection of Christ and the Father because it says in Genesis 1.27, God said, let us make man in our image, male and female, he made, he made them. So husbands and wives are a reflection of the image of God and the relationship of the Godhead. Quite amazing. So we only get this through what's called special revelation. There's a thing called general revelation, which is all creation magnifies my glory. And then there's special revelation, things we can only know if God reveals them to us. We could not know this any other way. And Paul is saying, this is the revelation. This is the mystery God's given us, and I'm going to explain it to you. So emphasizing the key words. Ephesians 1, what's the purpose of Ephesians? Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, which he worked in Christ and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 3. To me this grace was given to make all, all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, according to his eternal purpose. Verse 4. For the building up of the body of Christ, that speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, as each part does its part, causes the growth of the body, building itself up in love. Now Colossians, as we said, is a parallel letter. It has the same things. Chapter 1, all things were created through him and for him, and he is the head of the body, the church. And then Colossians 3.2, therefore, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, to which also you were called in one body. Therefore, when looking at the mystery of God's purpose for marriage, we need to set our mind on things above and not just on our day-to-day -day concerns or the things of this earth. So now we're going to look at the theological context, but more importantly, we're going to look at a debate. And this debate will help you see if your minds are set on things above or things on the earth. And here we go. Ephesians 5.21 is used as a proof text for an idea called mutual submission. 
Other, some people say that 1 Peter 5.5 5 is also another proof text for mutual submission because in the New King James Version it says, in the same way you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders, all of you be submissive to one another. But that word submissive to one another doesn't appear in the Greek. In the Greek it actually says, encompassethe, close yourselves with humility towards one another. So the only proof text for this debate is Ephesians 5 verse 21. Now to avoid insufficient interpretation or application, we need exegesis, the process of careful analytical study, not eisegesis, which is interpreting a text by reading into it one's own ideas, or using proof texting, which is searching for a text to find, a text to find justification for a conclusion that you've already drawn. But rather, we should let the text search us. To avoid the above, we need to seek the whole counsel of God by using scripture to interpret scripture. Or as my good friend Albert Einstein once said, I just want to know God's thoughts. That's the important thing here. What's God thinking? All the rest is just details. So, one side of the debate. Hamilton and Cunningham write, yes, wives were to submit to their husbands, but in the context of mutual submission of verse 21. Yes, they were to submit to their husbands in the same way that their husbands were to submit to their wives. The New Oxford Bible College Edition says, some feminist scholars see this call to mutual submission as a principle that moderates the subordination of wives prescribed by the conventional household code that followed. So now the other side of the argument. Feminist theological commentary. The main objection to the concept of mutual submission is that it logically demands that the Messiah then also be in submission to the church, since Paul described the husband-wife relationship as analogous to Christ's church relationship. This logical implication demonstrates the incongruity of mutual submission. <clears throat> the New Oxford Bible College Edition. Furthermore, the subordination of wives to husbands is legitimized by the extended analogy the husband's role is aligned with Christ's authority over the church as its head. Interesting. But people will say, what about Galatians 3.26? Sometimes this is called the Magna Carta of um, gender equality. 326, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now this is where it's important to know the purpose of a particular book or letter. The purpose of Galatians and Romans was to deal with the fact that the Jews were saying, unless you're circumcised like a Jew, you can't be saved. You can't be called Abraham's seed and an heir according to promise. This, the book of Galatians' purpose is salvation. It's not gender equality. So under the purpose of explaining salvation, Paul turns around and says, no, you don't have to be a Jew to be saved. There's neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, everybody can be saved. Is that good news? Galatians was talking about salvation, and the same Paul who wrote Galatians later wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 about how we then walk out that salvation according to God's will, plan, and purpose for our lives. Books had two completely different purposes. So, this demonstrates that getting the interpretation right with a thorough understanding of what the text meant then and there is essential to applying the text correctly here and now. And let me demonstrate. Hamilton and Cunningham also say it's important to see what Paul did, didn't say in his household code. He didn't say wives were to be, obey their husbands. This is striking because he told children and slaves to obey, breaking the tradition of the other household codes of the ancient world. However, we've already shown that the Greek word hupotasso means submit 
and obey. The two words are synonyms. And if that's not enough, we find, although Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, the parallel passage, both say slaves obey, the parallel passages, Titus 2.9, written by Paul, says, teach slaves to submit, hupotasso. 1 Peter 2.18, servants be submissive. So we can see the words are synonymous. Also with children, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 say children obey, but when Jesus obeyed his earthly parents when he was a child, it uses the word submit. When he was left behind in the temple and they came and found him, he said to them, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, the Greek word hupotasso, which means to submit. Now, this demonstrates we have nothing to fear from the word submit or obey because they actually unleash the power of the Spirit. Remember verse 17? The theme here is be filled with the Spirit. And a part of that is you will willingly submit. Because Jesus, the creator of the universe, of all things seen and unseen, submitted to his parents, two flawed human beings for the majority of his life in obedience to the word of God, yet it in no way diminished or hindered his effectiveness. Jesus still achieved more in three years of ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit and submission to his Father's will than all of us in a thousand lifetimes using our own wisdom and strength. Thank you. (laughs) So now back to the Christian household code and husbands. The interesting thing theologically is it uses the word head. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church. Now, Colossians 1.18, the parallel passage, says the same things. And he is the head of the body, the church. But 1 Corinthians 11.3 gives us something quite surprising. It says, but I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That's an amazing piece of the Trinity. Some people think this is referring to what's called the kenosis in the incarnation when God became man. Philippians 2 verse 3, now remember Philippians is also one of the prison's epistles. In Philippians 2 verse 3 it explains, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him. That's the sort of mind we have to have. So with that in mind, husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now this next passage isn't actually speaking to husbands. It tells us what Jesus did on the cross uh, because it says he gave himself for her and, and now he has washed us clean from all unrighteousness by the blood shed on the cross. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And Jesus did that with his sacrifice on the cross. Back to husbands. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. So again, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Now, back in the first century, then and there, Wives submit to your husbands was no surprise. Every household code had that. 
The big surprise in the book of Ephesians is this one. Nothing had husbands love your wives as your own body. Nothing. Nobody had that. that was the, so the big picture is the marriage relationship was created to reflect the relationship of Christ, the head, who loves the church, his body. And so remember, if we need one to understand marriage, we need to set our mind on things above. So that's the end of part one, interpretation in there. And so I have a question for you. Do the scriptures support mutual submission then and there, defined as wives submit to your husbands plus husbands submit to your wives? Don't answer. Now we'll go on to part two, application here and now. The Christian household code, of course, in the 21st century becomes the Christian household culture. And there's two main contemporary views to look at, uh, Christian egalitarianism and complementarianism. But both of them agree that Paul was divinely inspired, divinely inspired at the time to write, husbands is the head and wives submit. But the egalitarian, they differ on the application. Egalitarians believe in full partnership, in an equal marriage with mutual submission, as both husband and wife are of equal value. Whereas complementarians believe that the husband and wife are of equal value before God, but have different or complementary functions and responsibilities in marriage. But there's a lot, there's, there's, so, many, there's so many more views. The contemporary view of, in Christianity today is largely that marriage involves collaborative decision-making through con constant communication, prayer, consultation, and compromise with occasional deferring or submitting one to another. And it's also binary, it's between a man and a woman. The conservative view sometimes appears more controlling and lacking that love. The controversial and some liberal views, which is up the right end, some, some of those views believe that marriage is actually non-binary, it can be LGBTIQ+, and only requires consenting adults. Some liberals, even still today, believe Paul's words back then were misogynist, homophobic, transphobic, anti-polyamory, and anti-non-binary. And so as you can see, there's a whole bunch of different views. But one, one thing I hope is that we can all agree that the Christian household culture is founded on mutual submission or deference to God the Father. Amen? So now we're going to look at where our focus is. So with marriage, where is your mind focused? On things above or things of the earth? And let's look at these different views. The first one is the romantic view. <clears throat> and so here we're talking about, oh, l'amour. So enough of that. Now to the realistic view. <clears throat> the realistic view from data from 2021 50% approximately of all marriages from a law journal, of all marriages and de facto relationships which are governed by the Family Law Act in Australia experience divorce or breakdown. 30% of first marriages, 60% of second marriages and de facto marriages are slightly higher. So 50%. Of the 50% that are left using what's called the Cuba Haroff research model to project from that data, of the 30% of the 50% that are left uh, conflict habituated, which means the couples fight often but remain together. Devitalized, they stay together even if they're unhappy. They're passive congenial, they live fairly independent lives from one another. And then only 15% is what this research described as vital, which means they were loving, compromising and sacrificing for each other, or a total marriage. The couple were involved in all aspects of their lives together. So only 20%, according to this research, fitted into that vital and total category. So now let's take a look at the relational view. <clears throat> in an egalitarian society, adapting from Martin Luther King, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin or the balloons at their gender reveal party, but by the content of their character. 
So in Australia is an egalitarian society, the doctrine that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. However, even in an egalitarian society, if you go to work, you've got a boss. All relationships and institutions are transactional, contractual, deferring one to another, hierarchical with roles and authority. Legal codes, fair work codes, and family law codes. <clears throat> I didn't know Daz was going to be here today, but even in this church, for example, today, I was originally allotted 30 minutes for this message, and so I respectfully requested 40 minutes, which was declined. I then submitted a proposal for 35 minutes with a good argument, and it was approved. <clears throat> Not by you. <laughs> you would have been a pushover. <clears throat> But see, ultimately it was not up to me, but those with the delegated authority in this church. So we see even, even in the chapel where we act like family and feel like home, there is still a loving delegated authority and a loving hierarchy. And as it says in Ephesians 13 verse 17, we need to trust and obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls as they must give an account to God. But even in an egalitarian society, there can be toxic relationships. <clears throat> These are 12 signs of coercive control. Ten of these are found in the new New South Wales um, law code on co coercive control. Isolating you from your support system, monitoring your activity throughout the day, denying you freedom and autonomy, gaslighting, <laughs> the abuser makes you doubt even your own sanity. The interesting thing is both males and females use coercive control, either aggressively or more passive aggressively. Both actually use it. Name calling and severe criticism, as well as malicious put downs, limiting access to money and controlling finances, reinforcing traditional gender roles, coercing you to take care of all domestic duties and childcare, or turning your children against you. Now, if there's ever a risk or a harm of abuse, we need to seek assistance. You can go to your local GP, your minister, to the police, lifeline, or, or other lines. Controlling aspects of your health and your body, making jealous accusations, regulating your sexual relationships and threatening your children or pets. It's important for people to seek assistance if this is happening. And that applies to the perpetrators as well as the victims. Both need to seek assistance. Sometimes people just don't know how to communicate or sometimes people have got some issues they need to sort out. And if you see something, say something. Just simply say, are you okay? So there's some qualifiers to the submit instructions. King David and Saul is one example. Saul was jealous of David, and again Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but David eluded him, that, and that night David made good his escape, and the next day David fled from Saul. If there's any risk of harm, get out of there. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day, they were in authority, and they were trying to control speech. So they commanded the disciples not to speak nor teach in the name of Jesus but, Jesus, but Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we will speak the things which we have seen and heard. Don't let people control your speech. And the next one is the law is for the lawless. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers. There's a time to call the police. So, if we stopped here and focused solely on the things of the earth, then at best, the end of the story would read, and 20% lived happily ever after. <laughs> but fortunately, the story doesn't end here. Finally, the most important part, the revelatory view. See, life is a model with object lessons. There's challenges, 
in this life. God's designed it like a big model so that we can learn the mind of God. Romans 1, 20 verse 21, it says, For since creation, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and Godhead have been clearly seen and demonstrated in the things that are made. Also, this life, or marriage in particular, is a shadow, a symbol, or a type of the relationship with the Godhead. In the Old Testament, they were told to build the sanctuary, which was a shadow of what was in heaven, of the ministry of Christ. It also says in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created them, male and female he created them. So the purpose of a Christian marriage, male and female, is to reflect, reflect the loving, trusting relationship between Jesus and the church, plus the Godhead, Jesus the Holy Spirit, and the Father. So Jesus and the Father are defined by their loving relationship and constant communication and prayer. Jesus repeatedly went away to pray. Even, but even Jesus, the creator of the universe, submitted to his imperfect parents and his Father, and at no time did it diminish his accomplishing the Father's mission. In fact, it achieved it. In fact, on the one occasion, Jesus and the Father had a difference of will Jesus deferred and voluntarily submitted to the Father's will because he knew there was a bigger picture at stake. And so we see that in Luke. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done. But here's an important part in submitting relationships. But even then, within half an hour, when he was being arrested in the garden and Peter had lopped off the servant's ear, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think that even now I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal? Sorry. <clears throat> More than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that says it must happen this way? Is that good news? Even after he'd submitted, he could have backed out. Is that amazing? But he knew there was a bigger picture and so the same thing with us in our relationships, in a, in a marriage, there's a bigger picture. In this one, the bigger picture was saving us. Is that good news? And so to do that, Christ humbled himself and also became a servant. Christ took up the role of a servant towards his disciples when he washed their feet, pointing to himself as an example for us to follow. In Matthew 20, he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant. 26, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. He's talking about Christ as the head serving the church. He's talking about husbands and wives. In the same way, we are called to grow up into Christ, to move from self-focused, need-satisfying relationships to giving our all for others, even when there's nothing in return. This is a massive step beyond reciprocity, which is just giving and receiving, which is what most relationships are based on. It requires the Holy Spirit. It requires to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do this. It's a special relationship of love as God defines love. Christian households is no longer just a culture. It's a mystery because it's a reflection of the mind of God. The goal of marriage is to take two self-centered people and teach them to love and trust God and each other just like Jesus and the Father. But how do we do that? The story isn't finished yet. The second half of the mystery is we, the church, are the bride of Christ. Christ is our husband, husband to the church. He's the, we're, we are his body and he's the head of this body. And God loves us as he loves his own body, as he loves himself. And so God's love never fails, will never quit. 
Is that good news? So us, as the bride of Christ, our husband will never quit loving us. So then we can love because he first loved us. Or as Pastor Bron, a very wise woman, said last week, abiding God's love so it overflows to others. So in conclusion, each couple must negotiate their own relationship. And God's instructions are written to each person individually, whether male or female, and are not for one to foist their opinion on the other. And so each person must apply their part to their life by what they know to be the truth in their hearts. And no matter what the other does or does not do, we must still do our part, notwithstanding protective behaviours. In conclusion, then in the same way for all of us, as Jesus submitted to the Father, we too can say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because in the end, we can take confidence that as the bride of Christ, we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes, and so they lived happily ever after. (laughs) The end. Thank you. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.